Good morning. This is The Burner. I am James Butler and it is Wednesday, the 1st of April and we are still in lockdown. April Fool's Day, though I suspect no one really feels like joking today, at least. I suppose the long march is over. By that, of course, I mean the long, bleak and difficult month we've just been through, not the long march through the institutions, the phrase coined by Rudy Dutschke and sometimes wrongly attributed to Antonio Gramsci. That, sadly, is still ahead of us. And as you can perhaps hear, I'm a little tired this morning. I was up writing till 4am. Something good, I hope, though one never knows until it actually comes out. But things are all a little bit frazzled here in the floating nerve centre this morning. So I won't be talking at you too long this morning. Fortunately, in a dazzling bit of forward planning, I have something else for you instead. My brilliant colleague, Michael Walker, speaks with the Financial Times China correspondent, Tom Hancock. And China has been much on our minds, of course, since the beginning of the outbreak, both what happened when the early crackdown response on those getting the news out, how they managed finally to contain it, and what happens as China comes out of lockdown and what it means after this crisis is over. More on that in a moment. But the headline story this morning and the political controversy of the day is going to be about testing, testing, testing. We know, of course, that testing is a vital part of public policy on the coronavirus, though the deputy chief medical officer appeared a few days ago to suggest that testing was only really something that nations with a less developed health system need to do rather than the doughty British. A bit of British exceptionalism there, but Germany, anyone? That inconsistency aside, excuses around testing have chopped and changed. First, it wasn't necessary anymore. Then it was, and we'd love to do it, but there are difficulties. Then we've got up to 10,000 a day, except that we hadn't, and there are only around 7,000 being done. And now there's an apparent shortage of the chemicals we need to use, which came as a bit of a surprise last night to Britain's chemical industry. The real reason, it seems, is that, in fact, Britain's late shift from its strategy of herd immunity, let everyone get it, see who comes out the other side, to a strategy of suppression instead, left it desperately scrambling to catch up with reality, and yes, therefore facing some supply shortages. And there remains a difficult question here over how far the assumptions behind that first so-called mitigation strategy are still driving government choices – But even if that was so, it is inexcusable and perhaps to my mind even criminal to have been so slow in getting tests to NHS workers who are exposed to the virus every day, often, yes, still in inadequate personal protective equipment. Now look, there's obviously a key problem here, which is that admitting what's gone wrong means admitting there was another strategy in the first place and that it was badly, badly wrong and that the government therefore wasted vast amounts of time when it could and should have been preparing for the pandemic. So the real problem of this crisis, a national emergency, gets treated in exactly the same way as any other question of political management would, with half-truths, lies, excuses and so on. See also on that the story of why Britain missed out on its opportunity to go in on ventilator purchases with the EU. The latest excuse on that is that they missed an email, honest gov, and there's no political management going on at all. If you buy that, there's a bridge I'd like to sell you too. It's not all good enough in a crisis, and you might hope that some sections of the media might hold them to account for it. The Times instead splashes this morning with a googly-eyed story that the dear father of the nation himself, Boris Johnson, will personally take charge of the testing drive. Great job, guys. Now, 
I'll hand you over to Michael Walker with Tom Hancock, who is China correspondent for the Financial Times. Uh, my first question is in the context of a claim that Michael Gove made uh, on the weekend. So Michael Gove, a top figure in the UK government, blamed Chinese secrecy for the lack of the UK's preparedness for the coronavirus pandemic. Now, the dates don't really match. A global health emergency was announced in January and our government sat on their hands until March. But transparency is clearly an issue in China. So how open has the Chinese state been about COVID-19? Are there any criticisms that can be made which are valid? Um, well, there are no, there's no doubt that there have been um, elements of a, a cover-up of the uh, spread of the early um, outbreak of uh, coronavirus in uh, December uh, and January. So according to a paper published in The Lancet, the first person to display symptoms of the coronavirus uh, began displaying symptoms in Wuhan in December, around December 1st. And um, after that, the uh, virus was spreading in Wuhan. And um, there was a, uh, a number of different uh, ways in which uh, we know that local authorities in Wuhan, up until at least the middle of January, were not forthcoming with information. Um, for example, um, they were not forthcoming with information that the virus could spread between people. Um, that wasn't admitted until um, around the middle of January, although that was clear um, earlier in January. Um, and on a related point, they also did not uh, disclose um, that uh, medical staff were becoming infected with the virus until the middle of January, although that was clear in early January. And there's also the very famous example of um, several doctors who were comparing the uh, virus, which the Wuhan um, government in late December said was a novel kind of pneumonia. Um, there were some doctors speculating privately on social media that this could be a similar uh, virus to SARS, which is also a deadly respiratory virus that can spread between people. And those people were taken by the police um, for a warning and told not to uh, spread what the police called rumours about the virus. And that obviously uh, was part of efforts to uh, dampen down any non-official uh, reporting. Um, so that was um, a series of things which we can attribute uh, very clearly to authorities in Wuhan and uh, to some degree the surrounding province of Hubei, uh, leading from and December to the middle of January. Um, it's somewhat less clear whether we can attribute any of that to uh, central authorities in Beijing. Um, we know that uh, the coronavirus was discussed by the top leadership in Beijing um, in early January, but it's still not clear whether uh, Beijing had any better information than the outside world did at that time. Everyone, including reporters such as myself, were uh, relying on the information coming from Wuhan and Hubei authorities. And the World Health Organization was also relying on that information. Um, so basically, we have a, a, a clear cover-up of several aspects, important um, aspects of uh, the coronavirus uh, leading up until uh, the middle of, of January. And then we saw a dramatic transformation beginning around um, January 20th when Authorities in Beijing started to say that this was a virus that could be spread between people. And then a few days later, 
uh, we saw the unprecedented um, cutting off of transport links to Wuhan and uh, therefore um, stopping uh, to some degree uh, transmission from Wuhan to other regions. And that was then extended across the province of Hubei to about 70 million people. And um, also further measures were taken over the next um, few weeks inside Wuhan and across Hubei, basically limiting almost everybody to their houses for a period um, of uh, what was ultimately about two months. And that's, that's interesting, that nuance between local government and uh, and national government. That's something that I think is often missed in, in UK commentary on, on, I suppose, how China has dealt with this crisis. I want to talk a bit about diplomacy, and this would, I suppose, refer essentially to the central government, which is that this crisis or, or coronavirus, one might have expected that to become a bit of a diplomatic nightmare for the Chinese government. But to many, it looks like it's become a diplomatic triumph. Um, so China can, on the one hand, say we've dealt with coronavirus more effectively than countries which are far wealthier than, oursel- than ourselves. We've shown ourselves to have a much bigger state capacity than, for example, the United States. Um, and they're sending medical equipment to the global north. So do you think this is significant in terms of geopolitical relations or you know, when it comes to masks being delivered to Italy and London? Is this more about social media PR? Well, I think that um, from what we've been hearing from countries in in Europe and elsewhere, often um, the Chinese uh, medical equipment and uh, the Chinese medical help that is provided has been much appreciated. Although in some places there's also been reports about poor quality uh, products. Um, It's not very surprising that China would now be taking this role as a provider of uh, protective equipment in particular because um, it was already the case that about, for example, 50% of the world masks were uh, produced in China uh, even before this outbreak began. And then obviously China made massive efforts to ramp up production um, starting in January. And so it probably accounts for slightly more than that now. Um, And therefore the rest of the world um, would would turn to China for this stuff. Um, It's not surprising. It's probably early days to really say the diplomatic uh, impacts um, because there's also a, a global uh, backlash against China and um, an attempt to blame it for um, the problems that we now see in other countries um, that also has a lot of, um, I think, uh, influence around the world. Um, so is this an, a net positive or, or negative for Beijing's global influence um, Still probably early early to say. So just to uh, step back and add a bit of context, um, China is the world's second largest economy, but diplomatically, it's not a particularly powerful player relative to uh, the US, for example, which has a network of alliances that go back decades. Um, it's often said that China really only has two allies, uh, Pakistan and to some extent North Korea, who are firm allies. Um, so the diplomatic clout that that China has has been increased a lot by its economic emergence over the last few decades, but it's still in a comparatively weak diplomatic position, and I don't see any transformation in that. And in terms of, I mean, you're someone who's who's witnessed and and paid attention to the response of the British government to coronavirus and the Chinese government. Um, I think it seems clear at this point that the Chinese government has had more success in in containing. 
um, the virus. The the argument of the British government would be that's because Britain is a liberal democracy and the government were rightly unwilling to adopt the kind of authoritarian policies that we've seen in in China. I mean, to what extent do you think that's a sensible analysis of, of what's gone on? Is the difference between Britain and China that China were more willing to infringe on people's rights? Or is there something more more complex going on here that explains why China could get a handle on coronavirus when Western European countries and North American countries haven't been able to? Yes. Um, so firstly, um, it might be good to zoom out a little bit and address this question of whether or not China has control of the spread of the virus. We know that the official data is telling us that there have been almost no um, new domestic transmissions of the virus for a few weeks now, and that nearly all of the cases that have been found in the last few weeks have been imported. So that suggests that the kind of uh, huge lockdown measures that China took in Hubei province and to some extent across the country have taken effect. But there's also skepticism about Chinese data. We know that, for example, with regards to economic data, um, there are often um, questions about authenticity of numbers that Chinese, the Chinese government provides. And um, as uh, we know uh, from the early cover-up, there are also um, doubts uh, generated by the behavior of officials in December and January. Um, but I would um, say also that uh, the incentives for local and uh, also central government officials in China uh, following this huge um, lockdown across the country and the enormous impact that has had on the economy. I think there's a real feeling that the uh, what was gained during that period should not now be lost. And so the incentives for officials to um, cover up, I think, will be outweighed um, by the incentives um, for them to um, report honestly, um, more or less what is going on. Um, although, as with anything in Chinese politics, there's a, a degree of opacity that's greater than what we used to in the West. Um, so having addressed the question of whether or not they've got it under control, there's a question of um, how they did it. And um, I think it's fair to say that there have been a mix of methods which um, China was to some degree uniquely able to undertake because of the nature of its authoritarian political system. For example, um, suddenly cutting off transport links, um, restricting people um, across the country um, to their homes for um, a period of weeks. Um, that is something that a authoritarian government, which uh, is used to restricting people's uh, movements without the kind of uh, rule of law constraints that we see in some other countries, um, is, is very able to do. And in the sense that um, quarantine has always been a part of responses to new viruses for centuries. Um, authoritarian regimes do have some advantages in, in um, quarantine measures. Um, there were also other things that uh, China did. For example, um, there was uh, widespread um, testing, um, which began to um, increase um, in late January. And now it's fair to say that um, hundreds of thousands of people in China have been um, tested for the uh, virus. And also there's been a range of um, tracking uh, methods. There's some overlap with uh, authoritarianism there, of course, access to personal data is much less restricted, but we've seen that in other countries 
which are democratic too, such as South Korea, that personal data is used to track the contacts of people who've been infected with coronavirus so that their contacts can be monitored and isolated um, if necessary. Um, there are also some things that China did, um, which it learned along the way, for example, that uh, it was better to quarantine people showing symptoms in centralized facilities rather than asking them to stay in their homes where they might um, infect family members. And that was how a lot of the transmission happened in uh, Wuhan and uh, Hubei in particular. So that was something that they um, learned. And um, just as a final point, I was in um, Wuhan in um, January when the lockdown was implemented and people rushed to hospitals and there was a an overwhelming of the hospital system there for several weeks before medics from other parts of China were dispatched. And there was also an issue with testing. Many people um, who wanted to be tested, who had symptoms, um, because of a shortage of testing kits at that time, could not be tested. And um, therefore, it's probably fair to say um, that the total numbers that come out of China um, do not reflect the true number of people um, who were infected or died uh, in January before testing capacity was um, increased. That issue of um, separation of individuals who have COVID-19 as opposed to households, as we've done in, in this country, I find incredibly interesting. And I suppose something I didn't, or something I'm still not quite sure about is, was that something that the Chinese were able to do because they you know, had the state capacity to requisition hotels and find a different room for a, a, a certain family member who'd caught COVID-19? Or was it because they were able to overcome, you know, whatever resistance there might be to family separation? Was that, you know, that idea of splitting up families if one of them has COVID-19, was that, you know, taken well by the, by the population of Wuhan? Um, well, by the time um, that policy was introduced, I had left Wuhan on an evacuation flight to the UK. So um, I didn't report on that up close. Um, I've, I have seen Chinese reports that say that there was, uh, in many cases, resistance to that. And in some cases, coercion uh, was used, whereas other people willingly went along because it's pretty logical, basically, if you uh, think you might be infected, that you wouldn't want to infect your family. Um, so and there was a mix there. And um, we've seen centralized quarantine um, instituted in other countries. Uh, for example, Italy has also started doing it in recent weeks. I didn't realize that about Italy. Um, right, final, my final question for you. Uh, so in, you know, on Navarra, we've talked a lot about, and people in Britain are talking about how coronavirus will change this country, you know, so you've got a state which has become more interventionist when it comes to the economy, uh, the flaws in the health service being, uh, you know, become very apparent to, to everyone, not just people who are paying attention. Uh, and we've spoken less about how coronavirus might change other countries, and obviously you're an expert on China. How, how, how do you see the long-term effects of coronavirus playing out? Will it transform Chinese politics? Well, the most immediate impact um, is economic. So because of the decline in economic activity within China, fewer people going to work on construction sites and, and um, consuming in shops and restaurants and everything else, um, people in China, uh, especially low-income people, are having uh, great pressure uh, this year to make ends meet. Um, and um, the, to some degree, the uh, Chinese government has said that it will use fiscal resources to try and uh, 
moderate that effect, but they also have a tricky balancing act to um, restart the economy without uh, relaxing measures on, on virus control and allowing a potential second wave to break out. So that's the immediate impact. As for politics, it's somewhat less clear. I think that it's um, you know true to say, and it's um, um, you know, it's almost somewhat ironic because there are many people around the world who question China's uh, uh, transparency and numbers, uh, but uh, there are also many people within China who uh, ask those same questions. And I think that the way that the outbreak was handled in the early weeks and the very famous case of uh, Li Wenliang, who was a, a doctor who um, was uh, warned against speaking out of the virus, uh, speaking out about the virus, and then later died. Um, was very well known in China, and so I think that this incident has, um, to some extent, added to a, uh, a sensation that you always feel in China that there's widespread skepticism about uh, messages that come out of the government, um, and but also um, if the um, Chinese government can be effective at controlling the virus while other countries aren't, then that could um, add to uh, the legitimacy of the Communist Party um, in the longer term. So I think it's still an open question, um, the political implications, and um, it will depend on how the tricky balancing act between getting the economy going and keeping up virus control measures is um, kept. And you know, hopefully once uh, the countries that we're now seeing with larger outbreaks get, get it under control, you know, that's almost a, a nicer problem to have. Um, once you have got it under control, then how do you get the economy back going? Um, I think that's a, a question that w will um, be relevant in many other countries too. My thanks to Michael and Tom there. And a couple of things before the rest of the day. That testing story will be everywhere today and see if you can track which excuses the government shifts on and repurposes over the course of the next 24 hours. Donald Trump, in one of his freestyle press conferences late last night, dropped Boris Johnson in it by, as he so often does, inadvertently telling the truth. Trump referred to Britain's early herd immunity strategy more or less explicitly as something that would cause lots of death. And well, if you're okay with that... The perverse thing being, of course, that the Trump administration has been so far even worse on that front. But there we go. An awkward moment for the government there. Tech solutions are coming, with the NHS building a contact tracing app for smartphones. The biosurveillance future looks like it's bearing down on us, whether we want it to or not, and the left is going to have to get pretty savvy about this stuff sooner or later. It's an awkward and uncomfortable place for the British left, which is much more comfortable talking about economics and public ownership, than it is about civil rights and rights to privacy. But that's the wave of the future. Get on it before it gets on you. The BBC reports this morning that a fifth of businesses are unlikely to get their hands on the cash they need to survive the next four weeks. And that's it for this morning. And thanks for all your emails so far. As ever, do get in touch on james at navaramedia.com. I'm going to go and get some much-needed sleep. But stay home, stay safe, wash your hands, don't be a prick. That's it. This is The Burner, and I will be back with you tomorrow. Bye-bye. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.